The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. And I rely on English, actually. Nowadays, if I write a story in Chinese, I had to think in English and translate into Chinese. Oh, wow. <laughs> because, because, you know, I was yeah. so kind of my point of view is so fractured by the censorship. I just could not conceive a story um, in Chinese. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. It's like you're a, a computer that, you know, had to be reprogrammed. Yes. Basically, mm. if I think in Chinese, it will get hijacked by censorship. <laughs> I wow. do not know where it's going to go. It will go to some place I don't. Uh, that's not honest. Mm-hmm. That's not complete. It's not. Yeah, it's just partial truth. That's author Yang Wang, who was born in China and immigrated to the United States when she was in college, talking about the effect that censorship had on her storytelling mind, reaching all the way into her ability to think in the Chinese language. Yang's going to talk to us about how she broke free from that restriction and how George Eliot's classic novel Middlemarch helped her do it. She'll also tell us about her new novel, My Good Son, and share with us some thoughts on being an Asian American and an Asian American storyteller in particular during a period when anti-Asian sentiment has become a highly visible issue. Yang Wang and Middlemarch, today on The History of Literature. everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today. And I am glad to be here just showing up (laughs) because that is what I do mostly in life. I show up and I share and sometimes I sit back and listen. There's some of that today with Yang Wang, our guest, who is a wonderful novelist. Her new book, My Good Son, is out now for you to check out. And she is an incredible person with an incredible story. I'm fascinated by her and her story. China, I've I've mentioned before that I spent some time in China. I lived in Taiwan way back when, and China was still pretty closed. At that point, the giant in the room next door, all that culture, all that history, all that recent history, the Red Guards, and the Great Leap Forward, and the Cultural Revolution, and the Long March. It was all very recent. And all those people who were over there, so close, just across the water, living and working, trying to get by. It's an amazing place. I then, after I left Taiwan, I traveled through China, and I felt like Emerson's transparent eyeball. Maybe that's a distortion of Emerson, but who cares? It was how I was traveling, seeing everything, absorbing everything, taking it all in. And there was uneasiness there in China. There was a lot of change and a little hope and a lot of fear. You could feel it. But as an outsider, you're not always the best judge of those things. And so I tried not to judge. I tr- I've tried just to experience not impose what I thought was happening on what was actually happening. 
let that actually happen to the people who were actually there. If that makes sense. Well put, Jack. <laughs> I was also an oddball myself. An eyeball and an oddball. Oddball meaning I was someone reading Proust and Dickens and Dostoevsky. By the way, I got an email from someone who said, make sure you say Dostoy, do, no, sorry, Dostoyevsky. To. Dos. Toe, not dosho. Hey, I'm doing my best. I'm not here to hurt anyone. I don't want to hurt your ears or your feelings. I had a friend once who was a gentle German, the gentlest possible person you can imagine. And we were playing a party game where one person would leave the room and we would choose a person to be the secret person. And then the person who had left the room would come back and ask questions about the secret person. And we would all answer and the person would try to guess who it was that we had chosen. Like the person would ask, what kind of food is the secret person? And we would all say, someone would say steak, or someone would say chicken, or apple pie, or whatever. You try to give clues, hints. The person would try to guess. Ah, you're talking about so-and-so. Anyway, the question was, Something about what kind of natural phenomenon is this person? And the gentle German had to describe himself. And he said, a cloud. And the guesser asked a follow-up question. What kind of cloud? And he said, a flimsy cloud. A cloud that doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> That's me, people. I'm not one of those... Badass clouds that hides behind corners and hits you over the head and takes your money. I'm a flimsy cloud. A cloud that doesn't hurt anybody or or doesn't want to hurt anybody anyway. So yes, dos to yev ski. That's what I'll try to do from now on. That's what I was reading. Crime and punishment while heading through China. On those trains and on those buses, I had Proust on my lap much of the time. So I'm not as reliable as, say, a journalist would be. I was a cloud. And my head was in the clouds most of the time. I thought I could feel the aftermath of trauma. But that could have been coming out of my reading. I had read all about the Cultural Revolution, which was horrifying, China's great legacy of teachers and respect for teachers, starting with Confucius, or at least reaching back to Confucius, coming all the way to the present day. I felt that in Taiwan, for sure. Those students had much more respect for teachers than the students I had encountered in the United States. They were paid better. They were treated better. The parents appreciated them more, society appreciated them more, which I took as directly inherited from China. And then you read reports of the Cultural Revolution and what happened then. And things went upside down. They went crazy. And all that respect for teachers was turned inside out, cast aside. Teachers were targets. There were many other atrocities and horrors as well. We don't need to go into all of that. It's not a history lesson here. I just want to give you some context for our guest. Yang Wang came from that world. 
That was the world she was born into, right in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. She knows it far better than I ever could. She left in those early years when things were starting to open up around the same time that I went to China. In fact, I was there visiting. For her, it was harder. It was not easy to visit. It was not easy to leave. She left on a science. You could leave on a science or technology mission program of advancement. In her case, it was to study engineering abroad, and she did. And yet, while she was studying engineering, with that engineering brain of hers, literature took hold of her. And she found, as we heard in the snippet at the start of the show, that her brain was hardwired a certain way. The censorship of the Chinese government had led to self-censorship, and her mind did not permit her a kind of freedom, a kind of freedom of not just expression, a freedom of thought. Writers in her native land, China, were getting around censorship, but they had to be evasive. They had to be elliptical. They had to be sly. They could not be direct. And then she read Western novels. I mean, from Western civilization, America, Europe, Great writers who were direct, who weren't writing under that restriction. And English was becoming an escape for her, too. You'll hear all of that as she describes it. It's, it's a wonderful glimpse at her and at her journey, but also at literature, which can be powerful for all of us who are searching for meaning. I'm impressed by George Eliot for the way she takes on the human condition. I find it bracing and fortifying and full of life and full of meaning. She deals with grief. Honestly, she deals with success and failure. Honestly, she deals with marriage and frustration and getting older and life itself with so much honesty. It's invigorating. And to hear from someone like Yang Wang, who came from a place where her own language had become not a tool for exploration, but a tool that didn't work. Language should work like a, a platform or a door, a springboard, something that can launch your mind into the farthest realms and accompany you as you experience everything about this world, what it means to be here and to be alive, and to think that language is faulty that it's pushing you in a particular direction, that it's closing things off rather than opening them up? Well, this is someone I needed to talk to, find out what things had been like for her. Yang Wong, that's why she's here. That's what she's here to do today. Bring us this news. Yang Wong. I'm not sure what kind of cloud she'd be. A strong one, I would say. A resilient cloud, solid substantive, but also beautiful and airy, floating in the sky, rising above, and lit up with sunshine and grace. Okay. <laughs> I hope Yang doesn't mind that we took a swerve there, speculated on what she'd be like as a cloud. Let's hear from Yang. First, she's going to read us an essay that she prepared on anti-Asian hatred from a storyteller's and immigrant's perspective. And then she and I are going to go deep into a book that she loves 
and that she's immersed herself in Middlemarch. Yang was well prepared for my questions, exceedingly well prepared. She sent me an email full of notes on Middlemarch that blew me away. I knew I was going to be sprinting to keep up. But as you will hear, we settle into a rhythm, a Q&A rhythm. And I think there were a few questions that caught her off guard, which was also fun. She fielded them with great skill. I loved it. And of course, I love Middlemarch. You know that. We've covered that a couple times here. And I love hearing her take on it from her unusual perspective based on her life experience and her experience as a writer. This is good stuff. Makes me glad to be a podcaster. So let's skip our break and just get started. Here is Yang Wang. Okay, joining me now is author Yang Wang, who grew up in China's Jiangsu province during the 1970s and 80s, and she also participated in the student uprisings of 1989. Soon after that, as a 19-year-old, she arrived in the United States to study engineering, but she found herself drawn to the humanities and to realistic fiction, especially to the European novels that seemed to have a kind of freedom she didn't always find in the works she was reading in Mandarin Chinese. When she began writing fiction herself, she discovered that her creative powers could best be unlocked by writing not in her native language, but in English, and she has continued down this path with much success. Her latest novel, My Good Son, explores the deep power and profound burdens of parental love through the story of an older Chinese tailor and his gay American son. Yang Wang, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. Ah, okay. Before we begin, you have a piece prepared that you asked if you could read about the developments, the alarming developments here in the United States. Uh, which I think is also applicable to our international listeners as well. And and that's the anti-Asian sentiment that's recently surfaced. And you come at this from the perspective of a Chinese immigrant to the United States, someone who's lived here for decades, and as a storyteller. So please, please begin. The sad reality about the anti-Asian violence is that we see it coming during the last administration and notably during the pandemic. Asians, African-Americans, immigrants... LGBTQ and other marginalized groups have been taunted and demeaned, frequently assaulted and even murdered. The minority groups are not silent. We have been telling our stories for centuries. Books, films, music, and visual arts by people of color have garnered major awards and touched countless hearts. Asians and other minorities have contributed to the American society on every level, economy, culture, technology, sports, politics, defense, and most importantly, the essential workers are custodians, food agriculture workers, educators, doctors and nurses, healthcare support staff, including massage therapists. Last year, I helped a journalist interview people in the Chinese community who donated large quantities of masks, PPE, and cash to fight the pandemic. Yet racists have denied every piece of evidence that we are human beings with equal rights. Racists continue to target the minority groups and objectify them as scapegoats, using whatever random allegation, be the color of their skin, their place's origin, their religion, or whom they love to make them seem less human. There's another form of racism that doesn't kill. It pretends to appreciate but willfully distorts Asian people. That is just as harmful. Stories like Madame Butterfly and Miss Saigon written by white men who had no conception of Asian women, 
fantasize about exotic Orientals who are subservient temptresses. Granted, they are opera and musical and fictional. Since I will talk about Middlemarch by George Eliot, let me channel Dorothea Brooke for once and admonish the bad art. That is a lie, a waste, and shame to indulge. I don't care about the music or the costumes or the white actors putting on yellow faces. If the story is nonsense, Madame Butterfly and Miss Saigon said everything about the white men who have Asian fetish, but nothing about the women who are fantasized and sacrificed for white men's sexual appetite. Wait, did the Atlantic, Atlanta killer mention his sex addiction, as if it was some excuse to kill innocent people? Maybe Asian fetishism can kill after lies are repeated enough times. Before you write about Asian women, you must get to know them and what it's like to grow up in a patriarchal society. Girls have to be smarter and work harder than the brothers just to be fed. If she's an adult, she has already survived so many trials. She's strong, strong and resourceful. She sure won't submit to a white man who has jilted her. Give up her child and then commit suicide for his convenience. Can we reject lazy fetishization and read the stories by responsible writers, including Asian and other minority writers? Thank you, Jack, for letting me put in a word. Well, thank you, Yang. That was beautiful,、um, and I think it will、uh, dovetail right in with our discussion of George Eliot. So let's talk about your new book, The Good Son.、Uh, what gave you the idea for this one? My Good Son began with image. A tailor spends his entire life making clothes for other people. One day, he puts on a long, form-fitting dress and walks in heels with some difficulty. I didn't know what it meant, but the strange image stayed with me. I asked myself, does he pretend to be a woman, or is he driven by something else? I'm fascinated by how people work in the real world. A tailor reconciles his aspiration and artistic vision with the need to make a living. So I began to write a novel about a tailor and researched textiles and tailoring craft. I visit my parents, and they introduce me to a tailor in Shanghai.、Mm. This tailor had a son with a health problem. He told me that his petite wife had to carry the boy up five flights of stairs on her back after his treatment. Watching them made his heart burst with love, pain, and sorrow. I was deeply moved and decided to make my protagonist. A father struggling to raise his son up in this world. At the time, my husband didn't eat meat. Everywhere we went, people asked him if he did it for religious or health reason. He said neither. He just didn't like the taste. But no one believed him. They still pressed him to eat meat. It didn't take much to make a person conspicuous in the circle of family and friends. So I give this character trait to Fen. Through my research and writing. I pieced together different elements, and fiction began to be born. Why is a tailor wearing a woman's dress? Gradually, I found a plot about a gay man coming out to his father. My genuine respect and sympathy for people I knew in real life drove me to discover a story that eventually became my good son. Let's take a quick break and then come back with Yang Wang's life and works and our discussion of her love for George Eliot and Middlemarch. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat Cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So there are so many things I want to ask you about, but let's start with your childhood in China. Uh, I visited China around the time that you were getting ready to leave, and I was an outsider there, but I've sensed, or I thought I could sense, that China was still living with the legacy of the Cultural Revolution, and I thought I could detect that there was some hesitancy about embracing literature and the arts. So what was the atmosphere like in those years for you and your family? Yes, my childhood. When I was 10 months old, my mother got sick. So I was sent to live with my grandparents. Mm. My father was the eldest son among four children. My mother was the eldest daughter among five children. I had a younger brother. So I was the eldest of my generation, being only 14 years younger than my auntie. I was an introverted and well-behaved child, and everyone indulged me, the baby away from her mother. I was happy at home, but whenever I was sent to the preschool, I promptly got sick and returned home. So my grandma, uncles, and auntie raised me in a rather carefree way. It must have been a pretty democratic environment for me to grow up in. We had no books to read. Both sides of my grandmas were illiterate. My maternal grandpa was a farmer living in the countryside, and my paternal grandpa was a cadre living in Shanghai. He read newspaper full of boring propaganda, something I would not read today. So during the seven years I lived there, no one read to me or taught me to read. China was poor back then. There were rations for everything. Coal, rice, flour, oil, meat, cigarettes, and cloth. Our clothes were homemade. When grandma discovered that I had a good memory, she asked me to memorize everyone's measurements. Bust, waist, hip, and pant inseam, that sort of thing. So I spent my days watching other people. I didn't have the words to articulate what I saw, but I remembered all the images vividly and felt for the people around me. When Chairman Mao passed away in 1976, I felt a sense of doom, as if China had lost its father, and 800 million Ch Chinese people became orphans. We lived in a cramped apartment, and I slept with my grandparents. One night, I woke up to use the bathroom. My grandparents were snoring. I saw the fluorescent light flicker as if it would die. I was terrified, as if the sky would fall upon me, and the only way I knew to protect myself and my family from calamity was to shout a slogan, Long live Chairman Mao, <laughs> like mm. saying a potent prayer. I wrote about this in the opening scene of my novel, Living Treasures. When I was seven, I had to return to my, to my parents to start my education. My mother taught me to read during summer before I started school. 
She wrote words on a piece of paper and cut them out as squares. She came home during lunch and taught me the words. I breezed through it. Within three months, I learned 900 words. On the first day of school, I read aloud a comic book to amuse myself when a teacher overheard me and made me skip the first grade. So how did you get to where you got where you were looking to study abroad? Was that something that your parents, uh, once you got into that environment, there was more of a push toward uh, an education and a potential, I guess, focus on engineering that would take you from China to a, a bigger audience or a bigger a bigger world, I guess I would say? It came much later. During the 1970s, 80s, it was a time of technological and maybe I should talk about how I got into STEM. It, it was oh, a very yeah. long story. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before I came to U.S. as a college student, I studied physics in China. I grew up during a time of economic and technological reforms in the 80s. Mm. My father tried to infuse me with the belief that it's sexy for a girl to be a scientist because no political movement can touch you. One teacher had a deep influence on me, my high school math teacher. He didn't know English or writing. He didn't even speak Mandarin. He only spoke Yangzhou dialect. During the three years when I studied with him, he never showed favoritism to me or anyone else. He was a rare teacher who inspired my curiosity rather than stifled it. His passion for math was infectious. Using a triangle and ruler, he showed me how to think logically, be a problem solver, be independent and resilient no matter what challenges I face. He inspired me to pursue STEM. So I studied physics in college. I loved science, which to me is abstract and beautiful, very much like the arts. I came to the States to study computer science. At first, I didn't like engineering because it was too concrete and hands-on. It felt like a blue-collar job. But I was grateful to become engineer. It made me feel grounded, useful, and problem-solving was addictive. Mm. Right. Was there a, a sense that your family would have had? Did they? I don't know if they would have expressed this to you at the time, but looking back, do you feel like you needed engineering and the sciences because the practical value of it would have uh, been uh, something that your your family could support or that you yourself could feel safe within that. It, I'm thinking, would you as a, a 14 or 15-year-old have been able to say, I want to be a writer, I want to be a novelist? I never thought that, actually. Mm-hmm. Writing was so far away from my life because we saw the fate of writers during the Cultural Revolution. Mm. They were brutally persecuted. Mm-hmm. And the thing about censorship, that censorship took away the power of imagination. Mm. Mm-hmm. My Chinese teacher lectured the correct way of expressing oneself. You know, writing came naturally to me. I didn't like it when my teacher told me how to express myself in a more conventional way. I wanted to learn from great books, but Chinese writers had a unique challenge. They had to get ahead of the game by censoring themselves and make intricate patterns of their art by using metaphors, allegory, allusion, or symbols, all the literary devices, until yeah. story becomes a metaphysical jigsaw puzzle full of indirection and ambiguity. To this day, you cannot use sensitive words on Chinese social media. 
your posts will be deleted within hours. Mm. Now, some of the nation's brightest engineers are building the firewall with artificial intelligence ostentatiously for national security. So if any of this reminds you of George Orwell's 1984, I have to say that 1984 barely scratched the surface. Mm. A dystopian novel cannot depict the condition of a repressive regime because it is written from a point of view that is not fractured. If you can see the horror of oppression, then you are you're not a real victim. You're essentially a rebel, an outsider. A real, a real victim breathes censorship and embraces oppression as truth and happiness. Furthermore, they accuse anyone who thinks otherwise is wrong, pitiable, and brainwashed. When you started writing in English, or maybe we could talk about the works that you read that were in translation compared with the works that you read that were written uh, by Chinese writers during this period— uh, th there's sort of a distinction here I want to make sure I understand. And one way of looking at it might be, oh, here are writers who are allowed to say what they really think. And the other possibility is you'd look at it and say, here are writers who are allowed to think whatever they want. Did you yes. ever, did you see that difference between the writers you were looking at? Yes, I saw that very early on. Mm. Wow. So yeah, foreign literature in translation was not assigned reading at all. I did it entirely on my own. Mm -hmm. I just came upon Victor Hugo in the fourth grade, and I fell in love with Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. It must have been the excellent translation. The story was so vivid and gripping. When I managed to put down the book and walk to school, I no longer saw the tractors and ox carts, motorcycles and bicycles in bright daylight, but felt as if I were running down the dim lit at dimly lit alleyways in Paris during the French Revolution. What drew me to the Western literature was the sensibility and the freedom of storytelling without mm. the censorship. Yeah. The characters are not communist heroes, but seem to be normal people, rather fragile, like myself. They aren't disillusioned and broken by life, like the characters in the Chinese post-cultural revolution literature called the scar literature. The nature of the scar literature is that it is a tip of iceberg. In this case, it's not done for artistic purpose, but for a political reason. It means death sentence for the writer if they point the finger at the real perpetrator of the atrocities, which is the government. So the writer molds and disguises the story into some acceptable shape in order to elude the censorship. But even as a small child, I knew the sort of suffering that scar literature couldn't portray. A woman, our, our upstairs neighbor, hanged herself, and my uncle went to take her down. When the door slammed shut by the wind, he was so frightened he nearly fell off the chair and dropped the body. I remember seeing her daughter cry. Her cheeks were red, and she was very pretty. To this day, I don't conceive a story in words, because words may be a facade, something I tell other people just to get by. I often see a story in an image which surfaces from my subconscious with all its truth intact. Mm. Wow. So did you feel this happening? I, I know when I was learning another language, the first time I went to another country was Italy, and there were different stages in the uh, language acquisition where we would say, oh, well, now I've 
I'm able to talk to someone in Italian and now I'm able to understand their responses and now I'm able to watch the television news and there are all these little milestones and then it would get to, well, now I'm able to think in Italian and now I'm able to dream in Italian. Did mm-hmm. you, when you were in America and as your English was getting better and better, was there a point where you thought, I'm thinking differently because I I have this language that I can draw upon where I'm not self-censoring the way that I was in Chinese? Or or were you thinking in, in more like these picture images or stories uh, that was sort of outside language? I'm doing both. Mm, it, mm-hmm. it came very gradually. Um, but I usually conceive a story in an image, then I try to put it into words. Yeah. The plot needs to be drawn out in language. And I rely on English, actually. Nowadays, if I write a story in Chinese, I had to think in English and translate into Chinese. Oh, wow. <laughs> because, because, you know, I was yeah. so kind of, my point of view is so fractured by the censorship. I just could not conceive a story um, in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. It's like you're a, a computer that, you know, had to be reprogrammed in a way or um, and not just the software, but kind of your 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 hard wiring needed yes. to needs, you know, the language where the computer is able to read the software. It's like you had to go to that level in order to uh, get the censorship out of your mind. Yes. Basically, mm. if I think in Chinese, it will get hijacked by censorship. <laughs> I wow. do not know where it's going to go. It will go to some place I don't. Uh, that's not honest. Mm-hmm. That's not complete. It's not, yeah, it's just partial truth. Ah, it's so fascinating. I, do, you, do you feel like you have anyone, I mean, I, 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 literature doesn't have a whole lot of examples. There are a few uh, that I can think of who would be kind of your equivalents in Chinese. And then there are some famous examples like Joseph Conrad and and Vladimir Nabokov. But I'm not sure anyone was talking about censorship in quite this way. And do you feel like you're part of a very small group of of writers who have really had to wrestle with this and, and found the solution that you found? The group is getting bigger. It's definitely bigger than we realized. You know, um, mm-hmm. I love Hachin's work. Yeah, Hachin was the one and, I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah. She's, they're so great. And they also abandoned Chinese um, mm-hmm. in order to leave the censorship behind. And it's very, it could be very traumatic. But I consider um, it's a gift because I would not have written at all if I didn't have English yeah. or another language yeah. for me to use. Yeah. It Enough. just would not be worth my while, you know, because writing is so hard. And uh, then you have to disguise yourself. Then where does the story go? Yeah. Yeah. Another example, I guess I should have mentioned, was Samuel Beckett, who uh, found that he could write in French in a way that he couldn't um, get the English out of his head. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it may not be the censorship. It could be the uh, you just want to get a different perspective. Yeah. Um, you want to get get away from the cliches. Even Jumbo Lahiri, you know, she writes in Italian now. Mm, yeah. And it must give her something to, you know, more freedom of imagination. And the story just comes out in a way that's new and exciting. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, that's interesting. So what, so it's not just, I was sort of imagining you appreciating English because it was, uh, sort of utilitarian, that it was functional for you and you were thinking, oh, good, this is letting me tell the story I want to tell. But 
Uh, what would be an example of it being exciting when you're going through the creative process? Um, it's just I can be completely honest. It's mm. yeah. So like can, the, a character yeah. might surprise you or yes. Yeah. If writing's going well, the characters feels more real than real people in life. Yeah. Right. It will take you to a new height. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see everyone more clearly. Like, for example, you know the father in my story. You know, I am not that father, but he has taught me so much about parenting that mm. I would not have learned otherwise. So watching pe other people make mistakes, especially you know smart people make mistakes, it's very um, satisfying, educational, <laughs> and uh, yeah, right. They hold up a mirror for your life and show you all the possibilities. Right. Well, that seems like the perfect segue to George Eliot, because I feel like we are both going to be talking about that aspect in particular when it comes to Middlemarch of the way the multifaceted aspects of characters and and how deeply she's able to see into them and, and present them for us. But before we get there, I just wanted to ask you uh, where George Eliot and Middlemarch fit into your life as a reader. Was this something that you had read before college or after you came to America? I read in the MFA. Mm, By the mm -hmm. way, I loved your story, how British friend introduced a Middlemarch oh. to you on your journey in the Tibetan <laughs> yes. plane. Yeah. That was right. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Middlemarch. So my story, yeah, it's more mundane. <laughs> 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 I read it in a craft class when I was in the MFA. Mm. Middlemarch was so immersive. You know, when I was young, Victor Hugo showed me a new world in stories. I didn't visit Paris until I was in my 40s, but I looked at every street and building and felt as if I had grown up in Hugo's Paris. I named my eldest son, Vic eldest son Victor. Mm. Yeah. George Eliot changed my life when I was adult by showing me the internal landscape of a provincial town of ordinary people. I was an MFA student juggling fiction writing with my day job as a technical writer. My husband and I lived in two different states at the time. A part of me wondered what am I pursuing? I may never get published. Is writing worthwhile? By then, I was reading like a writer. I was conscious about what a story wants to do and how it is accomplished. I could find the holes in the narrative and whatnot, but I was completely lost in Middlemarch. The characters feel more real than my co-workers because their interior lives were on the page. Middlemarch showed me how to look into people, to think and feel with them. For me, the words on the page disappeared. I was transported to 19th century Britain and eavesdrop on Dorothea and Lydgate, Fred Vincy and Mr. Fairbrothers. I have known people like them and I could see a part of myself in them and watch all that's played out in a story so timeless yet relevant today. Was writing worthwhile? Yes, I had a glimpse of greatness seeing what is possible. I feel fortunate to live in the same world as Eliot, as if we were contemporaries. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's do our draft. We're going to select things that we love about, uh, we'll, we'll try to come up with 10 reasons to love Middlemarch. And uh, we'll see. Hopefully we have time for all 10. Uh, I am going to, well, let's actually, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. I'll let you take the first pick.
Okay, we're back. So we are going to be choosing 10 reasons to, or 10 things that we love about George Eliot's Middle March. Uh, what is your number one pick? I like how hard Eliot pushes the characters. Mm, yeah. Yeah, she's not protective and allows them to make great mistakes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Dorothea yeah. is high-minded and marries a shriveled old scholar. Lydgate is impatient to reform the medical practice and makes many enemies. He has garish taste in women and chooses a wife who thwarts his ambition. Everyone pays a price and lives with the consequences. Elia is not gentle with her characters. She takes them to the cliff and makes them jump. Mm. Mr. Kasorban has suffered almost as much as Dorothea in the incompatible marriage. The spirit young wife with all her good intentions may have driven him to early grave. We have Elia to thank for brave stories that changed so many lives. Yeah, and that's that leads me right into my number one pick. So I'll just go ahead and, and say it to get it on the table here. And this is a novel for adults. And there's sort of a, a very famous phrase in literary criticism that Virginia Woolf had said. It's one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. And the older I get, the more I understand what this means and value it and, and you know, just what an accomplishment it is and, and how wonderful it is that we have it in this novel. The dilemmas here are kind of ones that you appreciate as time goes by, as as time passes and you start to reflect on things like happiness and, and the true nature of happiness and relationships. And what the, the quote... Um, Virginia Woolf, I've used that quote so many times that it's one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. And it wasn't until I read an essay by Rebecca Mead where I thought of it in a different way, sort of in a new way. And she was saying that grown-up people is kind of an odd phrase that often we'll just say it's a book written for grown-ups or it's a book written for adults. But the the phrase Wolf had used was, it's written for grown-up people. And Rebecca Mead was observing that Adults don't really say that about one another. It's what children might say about adults. And it's the way, you know, that children might refer to adults. Oh, those are grown-up people. And she thinks that it's sort of Wolf's way of saying that that the way we look at most novels are kind of like uh, children would look at them. And that we'd look at we'd look for tidy endings and and happy resolutions. And we would the novels would sort of end like fairy tales. That would be our yes. expectation. Fairy tales. But we yeah. But we look at Middlemarch and we say, oh, there's there's some sadnesses here. It's not as simple as it seems. There's sorrow. There's complications. And your example there of, you know, the marriage, which It'd be one way to say that it'd be one thing to say that this was an unhappy marriage for Dorothea. That's kind of the the easy and obvious thing. But to say it's not great for her husband either, uh, <laughs> you know, it, that's not like a situation like that is it's not going to make anyone happy. And that's what we see when we look at real life. But it's not always uh, what we see when we look at novels. We're only invited to empathize with the the person who, you know, the protagonist who's stuck in a bad marriage with the boring person or the, the greedy person or something like that. But in real life, you know, we might be friends with the husband. And even though we might see that he's not great for the wife, we might see the toll that it takes on him. And we might sort of recognize that an unhappy marriage has a lot of implications for a lot of people, not just the the way that a novel might choose one person for us to root for. And then we watch the, 
you know, the the unhappy effects and we root for the marriage to end and we almost don't care what happens to the spouse because at that point we're on the side of the the person, the younger person or the more exciting person or the person who's being stifled. But instead, uh, life is a lot more complicated than that. Yes, I agree with all that. Okay, so let's move on to number two. I like the flat characters in Middlemarch. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Rosamond is a product of her female education, passive-aggressive, shrewd, and proper. She looks docile and delicate, with blonde curls and blue eyes, graceful swan neck, and never raises her voice. But she's self-centered and stubborn and thinks everything in terms of how they benefit or inconvenience her. Lydgate, despite all his brilliance, thinks his wife as if she were an animal of another and feebler species. Nevertheless, she had mastered him. Rosamond defies him at every turn and is unapologetically selfish. I found her amazing and strong, like the most popular girl at my high school, who I'm, I found so annoying. The only person who teaches a lesson is Ladislaw. He berates her after Dorothea sees him together in a compromising situation. Rosamond is shaken, almost losing the sense of her identity and seem to be walking into some new terrible existence. Ladislaw turns on her because he doesn't love her, so she cannot manipulate him. That is so satisfying. Mm, Wow, I can't help asking you a question because you mentioned the most popular girl at your high school. Yeah. What led to popularity in high school in China in the 1980s? Uh, First, you need to have good grades. Mm -hmm. That would get you popular. Okay, um, that's not always the case here. <laughs> right. And tall and thin. Oh, and, yeah. Interesting. Pl- plug into the popular culture, knows all the the popular songs uh-huh. and yep. movie stars. Yeah, yeah. And also be a little bit snob. Oh, because yeah. Because if you snub other people, it shows your power. Right. And in some way, a conformist, you know. Um, yeah. Just have that. Earlier, I talked about censorship, but kind of feels really comfortable with the censorship and looks down on other people who don't, you know, fit in the stereotype or all these things. This is a long list of criteria, you know. Oh, that's uh, so interesting. Yeah. Were you starting to see material objects being part of this at all? Was was uh, was clothing or any kind of gadgets or anything, were they part of this? Or was this still in the era where that was not yet a part of your world? It is part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they dress well, you know. Yeah. They, yeah. Or it just has a way of carrying themselves yeah. that has a certain pride and uh, confidence. And snub other people also is part of it. Yeah. And I, I really hate it when she snubs her friend, but her friend doesn't seem to mind. Uh, that kind of yeah. just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. It's so, we kind of beat ourselves up in America about this uh-huh. and about how mean people can be in high school. And uh, how selfish. And I think there's a lot of blaming of society of, oh, it's a, a society that values, you know, material objects or, or uh, you know, if, if, a, if a, a kid has in, in wealthy schools, it would be the kid who has the nice car that they drive to school or the, the most expensive clothes or something. But it really, as I get older, I kind mm-hmm. of look at 
my high school and the high schools I've I've talked to of people who have gone to other high schools around the world or the high schools that my kids are going to now. And, and it almost seems like it kind of comes down to uh, confidence, like you were saying, and the yeah. people who it almost doesn't matter. It almost doesn't matter if the people actually, you know, are the ones who are the richest or or the best athletes or the smartest, or it, it's almost like different schools will value different things at different times. There's there's nothing that is universally true except for that ability to uh, attract other people to kind of be willing to to accept that you're the popular person and to to be willing to be mean to other people on your behalf or to you know the the ganging up the people who are popular can kind of create a little circle for themselves where they're they have admirers and and uh, almost like troops they're almost like general in yes. generals in an army or something and they have these little troops it's really a fascinating uh it must have to do with human beings psychology is as much as uh the culture and what the culture is is telling people to value through advertising for example yeah you you're exactly right um i think it has existed as long as human <laughs> society existed yeah. look at rosamond she's not from a wealthy family right but she carries herself as if as if she's entitled to all these things and she constantly criticizes her brother then you look at Dorothea. She is actually wealthy compared to Rosamond, but she does not have that pride, and she's really good to her sister. So it is not what you have sometimes. It is just how you think, where your place in the family or society is. Yeah. And Rosamond, you know, despite being so uh, shallow and just so mean to her husband but all the men flock to her right yeah right (laughs) she literally drives Lydgate into the early grave (laughs) (laughs) but everyone says you have such a charming wife even someone as smart as uh mr fairbrother say oh but at least your wife can wear the storm with you but he doesn't know that she can't and she won't yeah but she puts up a perfect front that She's always seems so blameless, like Angel. Why she's anything but? <laughs> yeah. Well, that that takes me to my number two pick, uh, because I had it as kind of a variation on my number one. I mean, all of these things that I've chosen, I think, are kind of me valuing this in some way or another because it feels like a a book for grown up people. Uh, mm-hmm. But this, it's the grown up questions about relationships. Uh, that you don't always know from the outside and the way things appear differently from the outside and and what they're actually like on the inside and what they're doing to people on the inside. And I've known people who've been married for 50 years and they were blissfully in love and that's wonderful. And I I also had a woman I knew who had been married for 50 years say to me once, uh, please don't talk about my marriage or please don't mention my husband because she was in such pain and yet she had stayed in the marriage, it you know, for for reasons of children and and uh, economic security and and other things. But she was miserable and she really did not want to look back on her life and think of herself as even having been married to this person who she was sitting right next to when she told me that it was at a restaurant. And oh. you know, from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily know there was a difference between the the happy marriage and the unhappy marriage. It was everyone assumed that you know the the couple was a happy couple and instead um 
you know, she wasn't. She felt minimized by him and belittled. And uh, it just kind of came out one night at a restaurant that surprised all of us who were there. And Middlemarch is a book that isn't afraid to go there, to to right. say that this is, you know, let's dig into these marriages and, and see what they really mean. And we all know that marriage doesn't mean happily ever after, like like books that end with a marriage, everyone knows that, well, you know, will they really be happy after the book ends? But what I admire so much about Middlemarch is it it doesn't just explore it, it really expands almost into the the world of human relationships and humanity itself. And and to ask, you know, what is the purpose of marriage and what does society think is a good marriage? What's it like for the people on the inside? Is it is it doing for them what we expect it to do? And and even broader, what do we as individuals take from one another? And do we take what we need and, and give what is needed? Uh, you know, it, it feels like other novelists might say, can two impoverished people be happy together in this society? Or should a young person who's young and, and uh, you know, intelligent and bright and lively, should they look for someone who's also young and full of energy? But Middlemarch asks questions like, when might a person remain loyal to his or her spouse, even after learning bad things about them? Or... Uh, how do we help each other grieve? You know, those are really grown-up questions. <laughs> you know, they're much more than just should the two beautiful people get married even though uh, one of them is poor and one of them is rich. You know, it's it's really, uh, it just goes so much deeper than that. Yes. I also love that Elliot makes all the marriages, you know, kind of, at first, it's a love marriage. Mm-hmm. Dorothea married uh, Mr. Kosorban for love. Right, You know, right. she wasn't, you know, she, yeah, she, mm-hmm. she, and um, Rosamond married Lidke for love as well. They all liked yeah. each other. Yeah, <laughs> then right. Once you live together, then you become, you, you know, life gets real and how people cope with the reality of marriages. Yeah. So I found that was so admirable because it's easy to, despite, you know, um, to, to, to throw unhappy people together, right? But they were happy with each other and uh, this just deteriorates. Yeah. And, and right. the and, case with Mary Garth and Fred, you know, oh yeah, the um, Ladislaw does not look like a good match for Dorothea at all. Because hmm. he's this rebel and he's poor and and he's almost looks unsteady, you know? Yeah. Because he's a drifter, and Dorothea wants to do all these great things, but little do you know that they can come together. So the story really just earns those um, happiness, and they live their stories faithfully, and we follow them. Mm, Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go to your number three. I liked how Elliot portrays jealousy in all his oh, forms. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yes. kind of like a book on jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> Ladislaw keeps his dis- distance from Dorothea until his painter friend Norman is brazen enough to paint her. Ladislaw grows jealous and a little brazen too, but always remains honorable because that is the only way to win her. Lydgate dismisses the medical fogies of the jealousy for his reform. Featherstone's relatives are jealous of Fred Vincy's long legs and fancy pants. 
Even Dorothea becomes jealous of Rosamond, who is pretty and friendly with Ladislaw. This is a turning point when she finally reckons with her love for Ladislaw. Mr. Kasorban is a Tyson man, but he has epic three-dimensional jealousies that he hides from everyone, including himself, in proud silence. He's at once jealous of Ladislaw, for he's afraid that Ladislaw looks down on him, and at Dorothea for her youth and passion. It is a moving scene when he looks into the eyes of death with self-pity. I'm not a jealous person and found all these jealousies delicious and eye-opening. The story becomes so taunt and urgent with high-stake relationships. Mm, yeah, and I hope that uh, I hope you don't view this as betraying a confidence or anything. But when we were getting ready to uh, put this show together, you sent me an email that was pretty incredible. That was almost like a diagram. I mean, it was in prose, but it was almost like a diagram of different jealousies. And I thought yeah. <laughs> this this looks to me like. Uh, the engineering background has not fully left our friend Yang Wang here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems like something that you have spent a lot of time with the book to uh, uh, unpack exactly how Elliot is able to make these jealousies work and, and kind of drive the uh, the narrative forward, um, even as the the different jealousies keep popping up and and overlap and crisscross, and um, it it really is a. Uh, I was kind of blown away after reading your email about just what a motivator jealousy is for the characters here. I think I I didn't really appreciate that until I saw them all listed out the way that you were able to do. Yeah, I was blown away by <laughs> the depiction <laughs> of jealousies. I learned so much. Yeah. I cannot write jealousy. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's hard. It's not this layered, you know, and nuanced. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And is that because you had said you yourself are not a jealous person, so you don't right. you you find it hard to imagine your way into what it feels like to be so um so struck by this particular emotion of jealousy that it just doesn't come natural for you when you're thinking about your characters. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this jealousy make the relationship seem a little bit comical, you know? Yeah. Um, despite, <laughs> right. despite, you know, it could be very, the um, situation could be dire, but because it's jealousy, you could actually, readers could laugh at it, you know, laugh at the characters. Yeah. Do you feel like you have something that takes the place of jealousy? in when you're putting together your characters desire you oh know, yeah they want something but yeah. it's not necessarily jealousy because you can get things in other ways right. um i tend just to give up when you know when it's jealousy and yeah i th i think that's a little claustrophobic for me mm. but when i say uh, elliot could do it so well i'm like this is great stuff yeah yeah he's <laughs> the engine of the story yeah yeah and I, I mean, desire certainly can motivate people as well. Um, it's probably even more um, easier to see how that can be done. Do you think your characters' desires then just come from their analysis of their own lives? Yes. Yeah. They usually just try to get it. Um, yeah, because jealousy kind of holds you back in some way. But yeah. not necessarily. You can move the story forward, as we can see in Middlemarch. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it also gives the reader 
a real different angles on characters because when someone is jealous of something another has, then it it kind of calls into question how we feel about those two characters and is it is it where where are our where are our values? You know, are we would we want to be the person or have the thing that the person is desiring in the same way? Exactly. If Dorothea doesn't see Ladislaw with Rosamond in that compromising situation, she may not admit her lo- love for Ladislaw. So mm. that really pushes her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to, to the end of a rope, you know. Then yeah. she, then she can be honest with herself. So I thought, yeah, that's very revealing. Mm. Okay. Well, I will take my number three which uh, doesn't quite come out of jealousy, but it's kind of similar. And that is, uh, I love how this covers the town and it covers so many different aspects of the town and that it, it we're not locked into a single character's fate or we're not just seeing one character and their education and their rise through society. We're seeing a whole range of people and, and the way that this novel... Uh, you know, is in the town and the country, and it 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 lets us see these different reflections and refractions of the characters. I love that there are people who work and and invest, and we see the economics of the town and their deal with science, and they're trying to make improvements and scholarship, and and it 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 always seems to kind of circle back to uh, people trying to find meaning for themselves and their lives and their work and their ideas and. And this feels to me like another grown-up kind of set of concerns that it's, it's uh, you know, it's not something that I necessarily felt when I was 20. Maybe I, maybe I did. Maybe I thought, um, well, I want to do something that, that helps the world. But it wasn't until I got in my 30s and 40s that it felt like, well, what am I doing and what impact is it having and and is this what I set out to do and and am I happy about the way things are going and the impact that I'm having on the world? Yes, I agree with all that. And it's thank you for reminding us how this book was initially written as two books. Yeah. One about Dorothea, um, just the spirited young woman makes a mistake. And the other book about Lydgate and this young doctor is trying to um, unsuccessfully yeah. uh, carry out his reform. Those two stories on their own, they are kind of depressing, actually. Yeah. Because um, Dorothea may, makes a dumb mistake. And Lydgate is just throated by all this opposition that he cannot go anywhere. But when you put them together, they can help each other. Yeah. And and she creates this town for us. Yeah. And so, they actually they yeah. weren't working for George Eliot. That it, right. it wasn't until she married the two. It's almost like a like she was writing a song or something where it was, you know, it wasn't until she she put two pieces of a song together or found the harmony or the the bridge or something for the song. It, it's almost like she was really frustrated that it was she couldn't breathe life into the book until she developed this uh, merger of the two sides of, of the book, and then it all kind of came together for her. Yes. The song is a good metaphor. So uh, I guess we are up to you with your number four pick. I liked how generous Elliot is with her characters. Yeah. 
Earlier, I said how hard she pushes the characters and doesn't let anyone off the hook. But even as she makes them suffer, she doesn't go all out to punish them. The most striking example is with Mr. Bulstrode. After his downfall, he could lose everything and die a bitter man. Instead, the imperfectly taught Harriet, who has her own vanities, remains loyal and holds his hand and cries with him during the most difficult time of their lives together. It is extraordinarily moving scene and also true to life. In the real world, a person may choose to stand by their disgraced spouse in their time of need. They have the capacity to forgive and move beyond it. There's a chance for people to make amends, no matter how small. So the human flaws that Elliot takes so much trouble exposing, be it jealousy, indecision, unsteadiness, even deception, are fictional opportunities that make people make people grow.、Mm. Yes, that's wonderful, and I will just piggyback right on that because my number four was. It sounds very different, but I ended up going kind of to the same place. And what I had listed was that this was not just a book for grownups, but specifically one that captures middle age.、Mm-hmm. That Elliot was fifty-one when she started the book herself, and and there's a, a quote in here. Uh, that I jotted down, and it it comes kind of late in the book, and and its、uh, character is not cut in marble. It is not something solid and unalterable. It is something living and changing, and may become diseased as our bodies do. And then Dorothea responds, "Then it may be rescued and healed." And、yes. it just that moment just gave me chills, where it 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 felt not just that it was. The perspective that you get from middle age, but also a reminder for for people who are in middle age that this is true.、Uh, you know, you you. My experience when I was coming out of college was you you get to a point where you know when you're young, when you're say ten years old, every door is open and you can be a an astronaut or you could be a firefighter, you could be a professional baseball player, or you have all of these a doctor, or a lawyer, you have all these different ideas for what you can do, and and everyone just tells you if you work hard and and find your passion, you can you know the doors will be open, and then you get to college and you start closing those off, and you say, well, I'm not going to be a pre med, I can't you know stand the sight of blood, or <laughs> I can't、mm-hmm. pass、uh, organic chemistry or whatever it is, and and the doors start closing, and you realize you're going to have to go down. You can only go down one path at a time, or, or you know, if the the doors are going to close, and then you get to a point where you've kind of gone down the path, and you think, well, if this isn't the right path for me,、uh, is it too late to to start over, or to you know, it might be I don't have the energy for it, or I just can't get off of the path that I'm in. I'm in this rut, and and it might be the marriage, or it might be the The relationship people have with their siblings, or or it might be the career, or you know whatever it is, and it feels like, well, I'm at an age where I just have to ride it out now. There's no time to change, and I I remember I had this this friend who he was talking to he was talking to someone who had a child late in life. Uh, he、mm-hmm. was in his fifties, and my friend was doing the math and said, "Okay, well, you're you're going to be in your seventies when your son is eighteen." <laughs> and then he said, "He said your your life is pretty much over now, isn't it? That's pretty much it for you, isn't it?" <laughs> and he didn't, you know, he, he didn't mean it to be as、uh, harsh as it was, but it, there was some, you know, once he blurted it out, the the friend looked at him,、uh, and you know, just like how like. 
how could you be so cruel or could you possibly say anything more awful than that? And it, it's a horrible feeling for people who still have a lot of years left that, uh, or even if they don't have that many years left, that it's the feeling that uh, you can't change and that you can't start anything new. There isn't time to be different. And middle March, I think is, is a great example. And George Eliot is a great example. She was happier when she was 40 than when she was 25, which is not yes. always typical, but it's inspirational. And the book is inspirational in that sense, too. It sort of says there's time for you not just to change and get rid of things you don't like, but there's time to find things that you like and time to grow and expand. And happiness can be part of the maturing process if you are willing to let yourself uh, expand into it, which is, uh, it makes this book kind of timeless that, you know, yes. it's, it's one you can always return to. And it, it's not, it's a book that, uh, serves as, uh, that sort of ongoing inspiration, even as you come to it at different points in your life. Yes. I love all that. And that's why this book makes me so happy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to life and, on. Uh, you can always become better or be happier. There are always choices for you, no matter where you stand in life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're number five. I loved Elliot's sense of humor. Mary Garth is playful and spirited and makes fun of Fred Vincy, who is not fit to become a clergyman, just as she's not fit to be a schoolteacher. For a while, we wonder whom she will choose, Mr. Fairbrother, who she admires, or Fred, who she scolds. In Middlemarch, as in life, one's honesty with their limitation is a real strength, and the ability to laugh at oneself is true wisdom. Notably, Rosamond never jokes and cannot take a joke. Neither can Mr. Corsorban, or even Lydgate. Those who can laugh at themselves have more capacity for empathy. Mr. Fairbrother laughs at his own jealousy for Fred. Decidedly, I'm old stock, he thought, the young girls are pushing me aside. Unlike Mr. Kasorvin, Mr. Fairbrother is honest with himself. He's able to use his jealousy to exhort Fred to become a man worthy of Mary. Otherwise, he threatens to bow out Fred. The gentle humor runs through the entire book. Perhaps it's more visible in the BBC miniseries. I normally don't plot the film version, but this is a faithful rendition of the story. All the characters not only act flawlessly, they also look their parts. The dialogues are amazing, and nearly all the lines are taken directly from the book. Mr. Kasorban, even the villain John Raffles are great to look at. They're very funny as well. Elliot's world is profoundly moral. No one takes a shortcut out of a troubled marriage or life. Elliot doesn't make fun of the characters, but pities them, feels for them, and laughs with them. Middlemarch feels like story faithfully lived, and we eavesdrop on these remarkable people who, li who live amongst us today. Mm, yes, that is uh, something I was noticing again as I was returning to the book and, and preparing for this is I give Jane Austen a lot of credit for being funny uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, for for just being like the... I feel like Jane Austen could join us today and she would still be the smartest and funniest person in the room and, and the one who would sit in the corner and have the, the sharpest observations and she would just be a delight to know. George Eliot's there too. 
Um, you yeah. know, I don't always give her credit for that, but her just from the opening chapter where Dorothea and Celia are talking is just it's so funny and so uh, sharp. The the characters are so um, sort of gently roasting of one another. And, um, you know, it really is uh, yeah. one of the pleasures of the book. Okay, so my last pick, uh, I was kind of torn here. I was thinking, uh, let me tell you a couple that I'm not going to choose. One of them was just going to be Dorothea Brooke and just her character and and how, how smart she is and, and <laughs> yeah. just how wonderful and, and that she's not a robot. And there's a sort of feeling I had. I don't know if you've, uh, how much you've had a chance to watch this show, Seinfeld, but there was a feeling I had when Seinfeld first came on, when I saw the first episode, the first time I ever saw an episode of it, and Elaine came on, and I just thought, oh, finally, here's a, a woman in a television sitcom who reminds me of the friends I have in college, the women, you know, that mm -hmm. they're, they're just, they're not housewives, they're not uh, sort of ditzy. They're not. They're not just sex objects. They're not the put upon, uh, long suffering spouse. Or they're just smart and funny, and they're just real people. And and they're the kind of people that you'd want to meet and be friends with. And and Elaine was kind of like that for me. And and Dorothea Brooke is kind of like that for me. That I feel I feel very drawn to her as someone who I would really like to be friends with. So, but I'm not picking that. And I was uh -huh. also going to pick the the many influences that this novel has had with everyone from Henry James to Virginia Woolf to yourself and Martin Amis and A.S. Byatt and and my friend in Tibet and all the different people who have uh, benefited from this book over the years. But I think what I'm going to do is go back to uh, my fourth pick about you can change and there's time to change. And, and I'm going to take a fifth pick that uh, sort of dovetails with that a little bit. And that is what it has to say about social approval. And we had talked about this when we talked about high school as well, that that social approval is what we, it, it has such a large uh, significance and importance in how we measure ourselves. And Middlemarch says that is not the proper judge of happiness or worth. That we are being small-minded when we analyze success on those terms, that there's there's other values that we can use instead of what other people think uh, should make us happy or what other people think of our our activities or our relationships or our our pursuits. And it it emphasizes that the freedom of mind or being the best person you can be, things like that are much more critical. Being true to yourself or or being free to be good and having the generosity to let others do the same thing, uh, that those are all values that social approval and, and trying to do things, uh, you know, pursuant to social approval can really interfere with your ability to be the best person that, or, you know, the, the happiest and, and the best functioning and just the, the uh, truest person you can be. I completely agree with that. And I thought it was interesting that Celia is kind of like, um, stands for social approval as well, but yes. in a good way. Yeah. She has heart, you know, she's not rigid like Rosamond. Right. And she loves her sister more than anything. So that, that is, that carries a story 
you know, through its end. And then she asks Dorothea, how did you fall in love with Ladislaw? And Dorothea says, you wouldn't understand unless, you know, you feel with me. So she kind of resigned about make let other people understand her experience. Um, I really admire Dorothea's, you know, independence. And she and Celia are, are different. And uh, they kind of at peace with that. And they kind of um, gently make fun of each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is such a good relationship. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. This has been wonderful. The book is called, uh, is it called The Good Son or My Good Son? My Good Son. Oh, I had that wrong. Okay. It's called My Good Son, and it's available now when this posts. Uh, we will make sure that it's available at bookstores everywhere. Yang Wang, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. Mm, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Yang Wang for joining me. You should check out her works, everyone including her new novel, My Good Son. We don't always get this kind of a mind with this kind of a history giving us this kind of a story. Highly recommended. My thanks also to George Eliot, speaking of one of a kind. My goodness, she is so good, and yet still so underappreciated. But Middlemarch is worth a spot on your shelf, or, as it is for me, a place on the nightstand. I dive in here and there like a hot kid in summer who can't stay away from the pool. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time 